Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Well, would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to talk today about a caution to the strong. You do know that the whole context of what we've been studying starting in chapter 8 is to the strong. Those who understand, those who've experienced, those who've had the high privilege of those things of God. And once we have understood and God has allowed us to experience, etc., in the Word of God, in our Christian walk, labeled to be the strong, now we have a greater responsibility than ever. The ones who are walking with God, the ones who understand, always make the biggest concession. Always the responsibility is heavier upon them. Of course, the Apostle Paul has been talking about sports. I kind of get into that kind of thing. No athlete, I don't care where you find him or what sport he's in, if he's running or whatever he's doing to win the prize, wants to be at any time disqualified and taken out of the race to be replaced by somebody else. No athlete wants that. No athlete wants that. Everything he does is to be in that race. The Apostle Paul is saying that the Christian life is like a race from beginning to the very finish, all the way through. And of course, the picture here is so vivid. Just like an athlete, no Christian who's experienced the things of God, who understands the Word of God, ever wants to be taken out of the action and benched. He wants to be out there where God can use him. He wants to be a vessel through which God can do his work. No Christian, like an athlete, wants to be taken out of the action and put on the sideline. When an, when an athlete, no matter how good he is, stops making the choices of self-denial, the discipline of self-denial, when he makes those choices in the race at any time, it is at that point he becomes disqualified. And that's a sad thing. But in the Christian life, it's the same way. Being saved and experiencing the things of God does not necessarily guarantee you're going to be used of God. In other words, as you started is the way you continue and the way you finish. And that's what Paul is trying to get across in making his comparison of the athlete and the runner. Matter of fact, in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 9, he shows you how he compares himself to a runner, how he lives his Christian walk. Paul doesn't want to be benched. Paul doesn't want to be taken out of the action. In verse 26, he says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I run in such a way as not without aim. The word without aim, avelos. I don't run without certainty. I don't run uncertainly in my life. Now what that means, if you'll just stay with it for a while, and we've already covered it, which is just a review. 
but it's to run within the bounds. You know, a runner runs in the lane that, that he's been set before him. Not only that, he has a goal in front of him. And of course, you put that into Christian life. Paul says, I live within the bounds of God's word and his will. I don't get over here. I don't get over there. I run in the lane. I, I run within the context of what God has for me. But I also run with, with a goal in my mind, and that is one day standing before God, receiving the prize, hearing him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So the apostle Paul says, I don't run without aim. You watch me, I point somewhere. I know where I'm going. I know, I know how to get there. I know how to live. I know how to live by the Word of God. And then secondly, he shows us, like a runner, he doesn't waste choices on his flesh. He says in verse 26, I box in such a way as not beating the air. In other words, I don't shadow box. I don't waste energy on the flesh. I'm not going to do that. Every choice that I make is going to deliver a blow to my flesh. As he goes on and says, but I buffet my body, in verse 27, and make it my slave. In other words, I make the choices that causes my body to serve me rather than me living to serve the, the whims of my flesh. Now, why does he do this? Why does Paul talk about that intensity of how he lives his life, like a runner running a race? He says, less possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now that's the thing that carries in his mind. That's the thing that's motivating him day by day. Now when he says disqualified, he doesn't mean lose his salvation. There's so many people that never honor a context. That's the worst hermeneutic you can have to say that that's what he's talking about. His whole context is the saved. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about usability within the, the context of being saved. And he says, I don't want to be benched. It's the same thing. It's like an athlete. When he's disqualified, he's not kicked off the team. He's put on the bench. And that's what Paul says. I don't want to ever be benched. I want to be right in the middle. I want to be a vessel that God can use. And thank God we have 2 Timothy chapter 4, which tells us that he finished exactly that way. What he desired to do, what he did, paid off at the end. Because when he finished, he says, I fought the fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. I'm looking forward now to my crown. And he said that in prison right before he was martyred for the Christian faith. You see, the pain of self-denial in an athlete's life when he begins the race until he finishes it, never diminishes. Every choice, every step, every breath is intense and the pain of choice is always gonna be there. The very moment he chooses not to deny himself is when he steps back and that's when he's replaced by another runner and he knows that. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say. There's no R&R &R in the Christian life. <laughs> the time you start to the time you finish. What started you is the way you ought to finish. You deny yourself here, you deny yourself there. As Colossians 2, 6 says, as ye therefore have, have, have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. It just doesn't change. You can't back off. You're constantly brought to the cross. You constantly have that pain of choosing to deny yourself. The problem of an experienced athlete is that sometimes he might forget the discipline that got him to where he is, just like in the Christian life. Some of the hardest battles I faced many times were the lessons I thought I already knew. Are you going through that? Things that I thought I learned how many years ago in my life are the same things that continue to come up in my mind. I'm thinking, does anything ever change? No. It's not classroom 101, then classroom 102. That's what Paul is trying to get across. And remember, his whole context is to the strong, to those who understand, to those who've experienced the grace of God. 
And he says, you guys need to understand something. You're about to be disqualified. You're not even mixing love with your knowledge and therefore you become arrogant. That's his whole context back in chapter eight. And so he says to all of us who have experienced being used of God, those of us who have experienced the grace of God and the understanding of his word, he says to all of us, he says, now listen, you continue to learn the discipline of denying self. It never stops because if you stop, you stop, and if you choose the other way, you will be benched and somebody else will take your place. You're not indispensable. You're dispensable when it comes to being used in the Christian life. Well, because of this in chapter 10, Paul brings a caution to the believers. And, it's, and this, it seems to me it intensifies. He gives his own illustration and then he's trying to say to these Corinthian believers who are absolutely upside down, plugged to every person and everything but Jesus himself. And he's trying to bring them back shock them back into reality. And so he brings up the nation of Israel and he brings a warning with it, a caution with it. That's why I call this the caution to the strong, to those who've experienced, look out, look out. Israel was a nation that experienced the privileges of God. But a nation who by their own choosing chose the way of the flesh rather than the way of God and missed out on all the things that God had prepared for them. And he says, believers, don't you do the same thing. Learn from Israel. Now, in a little bit of review, first of all, we learn, as Paul illustrates, how Israel had experienced the power and the presence of God. Israel had experienced the power and presence. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now you see, Israel had been willing to put their trust into the one that God had sent to lead them, which was Moses. Moses stood out front. They followed him. They didn't have to follow him, but when they chose to follow him, as a result of that, they'd experienced together the power and the presence of God. Verse two, and all were baptized into Moses in, in the cloud and in the sea. And that word baptized means identified with. And again, it just bears witness to what I just said. They were willing to identify with Moses and they were willing to trust and obey what he told them to do. And as a result of that, they were under the cloud and they went through the sea. Because of their willingness to obey Moses, they were set free from the penalty and the power and the presence of the Egyptians who had held them captive for 400 years. Now Paul's point is very clear. Just as we're willing to place our trust into Christ, he sets us free from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. But being set free from those things does not in any way guarantee that we're gonna be usable to him once we become a believer. We're not gonna lose our salvation, but we may lose our right to be used. This is what he's saying. Don't misunderstand. He's talking about salvation. Just as, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the usability within salvation. But just as Israel turned against God and became disqualified, our experience with Christ does not guarantee that we will be usable to God. How we, it's not just how we start, it's how we finish. But then secondly, they experienced the provision of God. And that's really where we're kind of picking up today. And it's interesting to me that as soon as they've been delivered from the penalty and the power and the presence of the Egyptians who had held them captive for 400 years, immediately we start seeing the ungratefulness of their flesh. And it shows up immediately when they've gone through the Red Sea. In verse three he says, and all ate the same spiritual food. Now, what I'm gonna show you in the Old Testament is gonna bear witness to what I just said. 
It was in a, in a spirit of ungratefulness of the people that God chose to give them the manna and the quail in the wilderness. Now, why does he say it was spiritual food? We know it was physical food. It was manna and it was quail. That's physical food. Why does he call it spiritual food? Because Paul is trying to show them it was God supernaturally providing for them the, the food that they needed. Just like in our walk, God provides for us supernaturally the things that we need in our spiritual life, the Word and His power, etc. Just as they didn't have to eat, we don't have to partake. But the picture is the same. And many times, even though we grumble and complain, the provision is there all the time. God makes the provision. We have to choose to partake of it. What he's pointing to here is in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 12. You might want to turn back there and look at this Old Testament reference to what he's saying. And the whole story begins to show you a lot of the attitude of the people, but yet the faithfulness of God to provide for them. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 12. And again, I love hearing those pages turn. <laughs> this hearing aid is wonderful. At times, I have had a blowout recently. You know, that's funny when you're preaching along and all of a sudden, tick, tick, and it goes dead. And you think your ear is just falling off your head. It's a funny feeling. If I ever happen to have that happen, I'm going to stop right in the middle of it and put another battery in it because it's awful to try to go on. <laughs> Verse 12, Exodus 16. I have heard, now listen to this, the grumblings of the sons of Israel. I'm telling you, weren't these grateful people to be freed from Egypt and taken through the Red Sea? It looks to me like they'd be shouting to till the end, all the way through. But no, they're already grumbling, just like our flesh. How many people have you seen get saved? Give them six months, put them in a church someplace, and all of a sudden they're critical and just as complaining as anybody else. I mean, oh, don't you understand what just happened to you? No, we're just like Israel. I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, say, he tells Moses, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall, now why? And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why does he provide for them? Because he wants them to recognize he's God. And he's the one providing for them. He wants them to continually turn back to him. Verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. I've humorously thought of that many times. My daddy raised bird dogs when I was growing up. <laughs> They would have gone nuts on that day. <laughs> I mean, the quail was everywhere. But verse 14, when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Matter of fact, the word manna means what is it? And for they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread from which the Lord has given you that, that's amazing to me. Even in the midst of their griping and complaining, God still provided for the people. These are people that have experienced His power and His presence and His provision, even though they knew they didn't deserve it. Most of them grumbled all the way through the Red Sea. Most of them grumbled when they had to leave Egypt. But they still followed Moses, and as a result of that, experienced the grace of God, the divine providence of God. Well, then Paul points to the fact that they also received water. Look at verse 4, 1 Corinthians 10. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, I love the way he just nails this point right here. The same spiritual 
drink. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Now again, we know it was physical water. And again, he uses the same principle. It was supernaturally applied to them, you see, and supplied for them. When he struck the rock, the, the water came out of the rock. Paul says they were drinking from a spiritual rock. Now the word for rock is the word Petra, which is an interesting thought. Because it's the same word used in Matthew 16, in verse 18, when Paul says, or when Christ says to Peter, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Not upon you, but upon your confession of who I am. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower. So he's talking about a mammoth rock, a huge rock, not a little stone, but a huge rock. Now, Paul says they were drinking of a rock that was following them. That little participle there, the following them, has the idea of accompanying them. Paul says they were drinking from a rock that was accompanying them. Now, there seems to, he seems to allude to a Jewish legend at that time that a physical rock rolled behind the nation of Israel when they went through the wilderness. That's what the rabbis would teach. The Apostle Paul dismisses that real quickly and shows them it was not a physical rock rolling down. It, that rock, he says, was whom? That rock was Christ. I'll tell you what, you get into this just a little bit and you can, you can go to Israel and understand that Israel has experienced Christ already, but yet has rejected Him as being their Messiah. This is him in the Old Testament. Paul says, that rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Definite article, the rock was the Christ. And the verb was, it's used there. And he says, and the rock was Christ. Did you realize that's the same exact verb used in John chapter 1? When, Jesus, when, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Exact same, exact same expression tense and all. In verse 2 of John chapter 1, he was, speaking of Christ, in the beginning with God. And what he's just documenting here, not, on, not only was he in the beginning, he was way back there in, in Israel. He's, he's always pre-existed and the theophany of Christ back there. The rock they were drinking from was Christ and they couldn't even see it. He was supernaturally providing for them water in the wilderness. In verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And then Paul chooses a word here that identifies Jesus, not just Jesus, but he uses the word Christ. You do know the difference in those two words. Christ is his, his, his anointed name, his forever anointed name. Jesus, he was his earthly name. He says, you shall call his name Jesus, but he's the Christ, the anointed one. That's what links him to all of history. That's what links him to creation. That's what links him to all the situations with Israel. That's what links him to all of history. He uses the word Christ. Israel had been privileged to experience the power, the presence, and the provision of Christ himself. God, God had provided for them there. But then they chose to do something rather stupid. They chose no longer to trust God and as a result miss out upon all the blessings God has for them. That's his whole point. In other words, they became disqualified. They were taken out of the action, put on the bench, and very strong consequences fell in their life. Here comes the warning, verse 5. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You know that little phrase, with most of them, put, could be the, the understatement of the book. How many of them did qualify to experience? Two out of all of Israel. 
Now you think about that. When he says most of them, he means exactly that. Most of them. Joshua and Caleb were the only two that God allowed to go into the land that he had promised them. The rest of them walked around Mount Sinai for 40 years in the wilderness. He said they were laid low in the wilderness. The word there means their corpses were scattered out and spread around in the wilderness. Israel paid a difficult price because they weren't willing to continue to trust God. See, it's not in the fact that you, could, you trusted Him back here and you were saved. That's, yes, it is. That started it. But it is now, like in the book of 1 John, it's kind of like asking somebody, what does Christ mean to you now? Oh, I was saved 30 years ago. That's not my question. What's He doing in your life today? Oh, I saved 30 years ago. Hey, that's not going to cut it. Because there can be a disqualification in your life. There can be a point where God can bench you and you're no longer usable and just simply miserable and frustrated. Why? Because we've chosen not to, not to employ the discipline of denying ourselves. The times that I choose not to say yes to Him are the times I choose to serve my flesh. The times I choose to say yes to Him are the times I've chosen to deny myself. And I've got to learn that. That is a part of my Christian life every single day. Thank God He gets involved in it. Thank God that He, he works circumstances that brings me to the end of myself and keeps bringing me back to that place. But God wants us to be usable until He comes again. Well, what was the problem with Israel? That's really what I want us to focus in on this morning. What was the problem with Israel? Well, they craved evil things. Look at verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Now the phrase these things happened as examples for us, these things, plural, referring to not only how God treated them, but how they wrongly responded to him. In other words, God was constantly providing for them, but they were constantly wrongly responding to him. And these things, what happened to Israel, needs to be, he says, an example to us. The word example is also in the plural, and it has the idea of something that, that's struck upon something, leaving a mark on it. And what Paul is saying is, this is something tangible that you guys can see and understand. I've used a picture of, of a runner in a race. That ought to help you. But if you look back at Israel, that's even a better example that you can look back and see what happened to them. You look and see what they did wrong and you can understand why you might be disqualified at some point in the journey. The word crave is the word meaning to desire for something. Epithume, E-P-I-T-H-U-M-E, which is the transliteration of the word. It's an obsessive desire. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that controls us. I use the illustration of an 800-pound parrot <laughs> that says, Polly wants a cracker. Now! <laughs> it's that obsessive, driven type of thing in your life. And he says they were driven, they were motivated, they craved evil things. Now listen, there's a difference in you chasing after sin like they hear or sin chasing after you. There's a difference there. What they did, they let that become the obsession of their life. It's like a believer who started rightly and somehow down the road becomes arrogant because of what he knows and what he understands and he stops the discipline of denying himself. And as a result of that, instead of going on and knowing more, God just pulls him out of the race and sets him on the bench. I'll ask you a question this morning. Was there ever a time in your life, and we've asked this before in this series, has there ever been a time you loved Jesus that you could say more than you do right now? 
Has there ever been a time that you love being in the Word of God more than you do right today? Has there ever been a time that you were burdened to pray far greater than anything that's hit you lately? Well, have you ever asked yourself the question, am I going forward, am I going backwards? What's going on in my life? Is God using you? Are you the vessel that God can use? You say, well, how do you know he's using you? Sometimes you don't, but I usually, if you, you know, if you're living, denying yourself, saying yes to him, there's, he's using you whether you see the results of that or not. Constantly coming to the cross. This is not perfection, this is predictability. Well, that word to desire can be used in a good sense. Many, many places, I just picked one of them. 1 Timothy 3, 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, the elder, it is fine work that he, it is a fine work he desires to do. So you can aspire to be a shepherd of a flock and God puts that desire within you and that's something he builds up within you and gifts you for. And that's a good desire. But most of the time, the word epithume is used in Scripture. That particular word is not used that way, but the, the, the root word is, every time it's used, it has to do with a negative sense. And so Israel made a huge mistake. It's just like a runner. If a runner stops denying himself, if a runner stops the discipline of denying himself, he's going to be disqualified. Exactly what happens to the Christian. That's exactly what happened to Israel. When you take the very things that you've been saved from and start chasing after them again, look out because you're not going to be usable to God. That's the key. Doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. This simply means you've lost all the joy. You've lost all the, the sense of his presence in your life. You've lost all of that until you come back to the cross. You've been disqualified. The term evil things is, a, is an interesting term and a very telling term. The word evil is the word kakos, K-A-K-O-S, transliterated. Now that's the antithesis of another word, kalos. Kalos is good, inherently or constitutionally good. Over here is kakos, constitutionally bad. Now I want to show you something. Look over in Romans chapter 7. I want to show you something. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. Very clear verse here. One's the opposite of the other. If one is not there, the other one is. Now look here. Romans chapter 7 and verse 18. And this is the Apostle Paul. Many times this, this chapter is debated over and over again. Was he lost? Was he saved? I think he was saved. And I have changed my mind over the years on that just by doing the study of Romans. Verse 18, I believe he's saved and going through the same struggle we go through and being warned about by Paul. He says, for I know that, now listen to this, nothing good, now that word is kalos, dwells in me. Oh, wait a minute, he has to be lost because oh, Christ lives in us. And then, he, then he qualifies it. That is, make sure you understand, in my what? Flesh. Now let me ask you a question. If there's nothing kalos, good, in the flesh, then the, the absence of one determines the presence of the other. And the antithesis of that is kakos, evil. So therefore, kakos is always present in my flesh. There's nothing good in it. There's only evil in it. And so what we're seeing here is that the word kakos that he's talking about evil here in Corinthians is directly tied to the flesh. They craved the things of the flesh. As a matter of fact, in verse 19 of Romans 7, he says, for the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very what? Evil that I do not wish. Where does the evil dwell? In my flesh. What is he saying? When I choose after my flesh, that's the only thing that can result. Now, Israel desired that which pleased the flesh. Let me ask you a question. We live in the 20th century. We all say we love Jesus. Do we? You know, can, if you could be a fly 
on the wall in my house, or I could be a fly on the wall at your house. What is it you crave? What is it that drives you and motivates you? What is it that's caused the vacancy and the vacuum in your life of saying, I just don't feel used anymore. I don't feel like there's a purpose in my life anymore. Could it be that you've stepped off track? You've gotten out of bounds. You've gotten out of the lane, as Paul would say in chapter nine. You have somehow gotten your aim off of where you're headed and somehow you've begun to be motivated once again by the flesh. Well, not me, Brother Wayne. The water's different in my subdivision. I don't have these problems. Why are you saying it like that? <laughs> I'm saying it like that because I'm one of the ones I need to be talking to, much less you. Now, what are the symptoms of craving the flesh? And you say, now walk, we're going to take a little pop test here, take all the books off the desk, take out a clean sheet of paper. Let's just find out if we're craving the flesh. First of all is idolatry, idolatry. And I can hear somebody say, well, it's not in my life. <laughs> I threw all those statues out of my house a long time ago. Verse 7, and do not be idolaters as your first symptom of craving the flesh. As some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now it's interesting that he starts off with idolatry because that's the root of all sin. Corinth would have understood that because it was the most idolatrous city in Greece at that time. Remember, if you were living idolatrous or, or immoral, they would say, look out, you're living like a Corinthian. Corinth had all the temples, the, the, the pagan gods, the pagan idols. It would take little imagination for them to understand what Paul was talking about. Of the 11 times the word idol is used in the New Testament, five of those times in 1 Corinthians. Of the 10 times the word, the phrase, meat sacrifice to idols is used in the New Testament, six of those times are in 1 Corinthians. Of the seven times the word idolatry is used, it is found four times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so Paul says, do not be idolaters as some of them were that do not be present, middle imperative. In other words, as a lifestyle, middle voice, don't you choose, don't you make that choice. You see, the temptation of the flesh it is never the problem. The problem is we make the choice. Once you become a Christian, buddy, and I become a Christian, I am therefore responsible for every choice I make. I cannot blame it on the world. I can't blame it on the president. I can't blame it on my wife, and I can't blame it on my family. If I make that choice, then I make my choice. Present, middle. Present tense means not just once, but twice, and three times, and four times. Don't let it become a habit in your life to where you choose idolatry. Now, it's one thing, again, for fleshly sin to chase after you, it's another for, it, for you to chase after it. Now, I want to keep saying that because there is a difference there. That's what changes in salvation. The problem you get is when a person saved goes back and chases after sin. Now, that's, a, that's a, an anathema to the Christian life. The word idolaters is the word that means idol worshiper. It's the word idolon, which means idol, and latris, which means worshiper. And one of the best verses I've ever found in all the studies I've done on what an idol is is found in the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 2 and verse 18. You might want to turn there. You might just want to listen. Chapter 2 and verse 18 of Habakkuk. And he says this in Habakkuk chapter 2. And if you are looking it up, I'll go ahead and read it because it will take you forever to find it. What prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Now what is he saying? He's saying that an idol is nothing more than the imagination of the person who made it. And it demands nothing 
really, of, of yourself. It, whatever demand you don't like, you just change the demand. You made the idol so you can change the rules. That's all an idol is. So when you think of an idol, folks, don't just think of a statue somewhere like Nebuchadnezzar built. Think of something in your own life that you have taken and put in the place of a living God. Something that you bow to, something that takes all your emotion, all your time, all your money, all your energy, it's sucking it right into this. Has that become an idol in your life? And it's an idol of your own making. It's the product of your imagination. The verse goes on to describe their idolatry. It says, and do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Now this is a quote out of Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6. Now I do want you to turn there. Turn back to Exodus chapter 32 because we're going to look at the context here. Context, boy, rules. And I want to share with you what happened. This is right after, remember, it hadn't been long since they'd been delivered from the power and the presence and the, and the, and the penalty of being under the captivity of the Egyptians. They've been set free miraculously, baptized through the sea as they were baptized into Moses and identified with him, immersed, taken all the way through. Now they're on the other side. Look what happens here. In Exodus 32, verse 6, this is what Paul quotes. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, now, in order to understand that verse, you've got to go back and read verses 1 through 5. This is a terrible time in Israel. This is right after Aaron has just made the golden calf. Moses has been up on the mountain, but where is he? I don't know. The guy hadn't come back. So what are we going to do? Okay, build us a God to take his place. Look here at verse 1, Exodus 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled with Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. You make us a God who will go before us. <laughs> As if our God does not go before them. And they've already been under the cloud. They've already been through the sea. All these things have already taken place. How quickly they forget. How quickly we've forgotten what it was to be saved, folks. How quickly we've forgotten the desperation when we bowed before Christ and we were delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. How quickly we forget it and how quickly we find something else to take God's place in our life just like them. As for Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So make us a God. Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off all the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you believe the blasphemy that comes from the nation of Israel? How quickly they'll change gods. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We don't know what the word play actually means, but we think it means, and I'm one of the ones who think this, that when they indulged themselves in their eating, then they rose up for immorality, the play being a sexual uh, term there because it always associated with all the idolatry in the Old Testament. These are the people of God. You say, well, Brother Wayne, the problem in America today is church. <laughs> I agree. But stop pointing your finger out there. If you're born again this morning, the problem is us who have replaced a living God with an idol. What is it? What is it we've replaced him with this morning? 
What is it? What is it that took you out of church? What is it that took you out of the Word because you found something better in it? Was it a job? Was it the fact that your company started growing so fast you didn't have time to get in the Word of God anymore and all of a sudden you were able to enjoy the things of this world that you couldn't enjoy before and all of a sudden you don't need God anymore? That's idolatry. And he says to people that are idolatrous, they're going to be disqualified. And Paul says, I'm warning you I'm warning you. Man, I tell you, you think it can't happen to preachers? In a hot dog minute can happen. I want you to understand something. The ground's level at the cross, and I struggle with the very same things you struggle with. And I'll tell you what, how quickly, because you've experienced and because you know and because you understand how we get arrogant with that and think we deserve it, and that quick, we'll put an idol in front of us. Years ago, I had a car given to me. I've had a lot since that time, but this is the first one. <laughs> that car was my car, man. Oh, man, it was my car. You talking about becoming an idol to you. I wouldn't let anybody. If Haywood Cosby would have called me and said, can I borrow your car? I'm saying, sorry, Haywood, this is my car. Kept that thing clean. It was one of those things, the first time I'd ever had a power seat on anything. Son, I'd play with that thing. I'd sit at stoplights and, and run the window up and down, just pushing that little button, run that thing up and down. Locking the doors, boom, all the doors locked. Push a button, FM, AM, radio, man, it was wonderful. Speakers all over the thing. The, the sitting in it was like sitting on your couch in the living room. It was wonderful. One day I had to go to the hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, and I left to head down that way. Boy, I was enjoying it, air conditioning on because it was always hot in that place. And riding down the road, I didn't see this until too late. There was a piece of pipe laying on the side of the road just where my right front wheel would hit it. And I was looking around. I was counting crows. As a matter of fact, if you want to be real honest, there's crows, that would, would, I mean hawks rather, would come down and sit on those, uh, the wires on the side of the interstate. And I was counting hawks because I had, I'd been up to 64 and I was going to see if I could count more than 64 that day. So I wasn't looking at the road. I was looking at the hawks on the side of the road. And suddenly I hit that pipe. And that pipe, when I hit it, did a funny thing. It flipped up and caught the very, the beautiful chrome strip that was down the side of the bottom of those doors about that wide, caught that thing and put a gash in it, I'm telling you, an inch wide and about a half inch deep it looked like, couldn't have been because the door's not down, but all the way down the side of that thing just went, ripped it all the way down. I pulled over on the side of the road, man, I kicked the tires. Good, it was my car. God, why'd you let this happen? It was almost like out of heaven and I really understood it afresh when I was studying this. Like God said, son, don't you ever get that thing fixed. I want you to drive it every day of your life. And I want you to let that mark down the side of it remind you, this is not your car. It's mine. And the very moment you start attaching yourself to it, you have just committed idolatry and that puts that in the place of where I ought to be in your life. Turn it loose and just bow before me. Tell you what, folks, what's, what is it in your life you're attached to this morning? What is it? What is it? I, I'm of a firm conviction that whatever church we're talking about, whether it be ours or anyplace else, that if the people of God would come back to worshiping God, that would be the money to do whatever God told them to do. Period. Period. Secondly, immorality. I want you to see something here. How idolatry and immorality are directly linked. They're strange bedfellows, no pun intended, but they're always linked together. 
Once a person usurps the authority of God in his life by anything he puts in its place, immediately there's going to be immorality to happen in his life. Now, in this particular sense, the immorality is sexual, and it has to do with the Moabite women that he's going to refer to in a moment when Israel started going and having immoral relations with the Moabite women. I'll explain that in a moment. But immorality can take all kinds of phases. Actually, the word used here for immorality is the house that all kinds of immorality lives in. It doesn't necessarily have to be this or that. It can be a lot of things that fits inside this house. Verse 8, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. <laughs> Boy, I tell you what, if we would just get serious with what God says it says it's, it's, it, immorality is an idolatrous practice. Immorality is an idolatrous practice. If a person's immoral, he's idolatrous. Period. That's me, that's you, that's anybody. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, Paul says, flee immorality. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, flee idolatry. He uses the term flee for those two, two things right there because they're absolutely linked together. Now, in our text, Paul is speaking of a time recorded in Numbers 25. And what has happened here is they have, the men of Israel have gone out and co-inhabited with the Moabite women. Do you know who Moab was? Moab is the incestuous son of Lot and one of his daughters. They were avowed enemies of Israel. And remember, God said, don't you dare intermarry. Don't you get near. You wipe out all these people because it, if you don't do that, it's going to lead you into immorality. It's going to lead you into adultery. Sure enough, that's exactly what happened. And this is a, a quote that he takes out of that very thing. Look in Numbers 25 and verse 1. Numbers 25 and verse 1. He says, While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their God. This is Israel now, right with them. So Israel joined themselves to Baal, that's their God, and Peor, that's their God. And the Lord was angry against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal and of Peor, then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he arose from amidst the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague of the sons of Israel was checked. And those who died by the plague were 24,000. You may think that's a, a controversy with what Paul says. Paul says 23,000, but Paul says on that day. Whereas the scripture account says there were 24,000 total, but 23,000 on one day died. So there's no confusion there. The main thing is that we can see the mixture of immorality and idolatry. Isn't it interesting? When you start craving the things of the flesh. Now, I want to tell you something. Once you get saved, immorality, idolatry, and all these things will follow after you. They will. That's a trap already set. There's a difference in you falling particularly to something one time, repenting of it and coming back, or to a person who craves it and pursues it. There's a big difference there. 
And this is what he's talking about right here. When you pursue that kind of thing. They desired, craved evil things. You say, well, Wayne, I, I've been in church for years and my Christian life has grown cold and mechanical. I don't feel anything anymore. I come to church and I don't even know if I'm saved anymore. Well, to me, the answer is simple. Go back and find out what has usurped the place of Jesus Christ in your life. What is it? Is it a ministry? <laughs> what? Has happened to a lot of folks and they've fallen because of it. Is it a reputation? I, I don't know what it is. What is it that's taken the place of Jesus in your life? That's what God asked me as I was studying this. Because you see, we all have to deal with it. Every day, just like a runner can't deal with it once and expect to finish the race. He deals with it every step that he takes. Or if not, he's going to be pulled out and sat on the bench. Well, there's more. I have about 11 more pages, but let's just, it's time to go. You know how they catch monkeys? I've told you this how many times since I've been here. I don't know why I use that illustration, except when I look in the mirror, it kind of reminds me. But you know how they catch monkeys? They take a jar that has a, a thin neck, just big enough for a monkey to get his paw in. And they put candy in it. If you've never been to Africa, you don't realize how monkeys love candy. You anything sweet at all. I've had them jump on the car. We've had five and six monkeys on top of the car at one time trying to get them off and what it was. They smell. One of us was eating some breath mints or whatever it was, but they smell that. They love candy. And so they've got the jar chained, anchored to, a, to, a, to something very solid to where the monkey has to come up and make his own commitment to put his hand inside that jar. Nothing's there other than the candy that's inside of it. Well, when he gets it, he closes his fist and then he can't get it out because the, the neck of the jar is fixed to where the paw can get in, but it can't if it's clenched. And you know what? It works every time. Because the monkey's not willing to let go of what his flesh desires. And for that reason, he's put himself back into captivity. Of all the animals in the jungle, the monkey is the freest one. On my 40th birthday, my kids took me to see Jungle Book. <laughs> and I remember Stephanie saying, Daddy, you're laughing too loud and you're the only adult in this place. <laughs> you know which character they associated me with, don't you? <laughs> Baloo, <laughs> the big bear. <laughs> but, the, but the monkeys, remember the monkeys? Man, were they having a good time or what? Flipping around and grabbing the vine and all that. It's free as a bird, but buddy. You put a jar with something their flesh craves and they put themselves right back into captivity and disqualify themselves from the freedom that they already had because they won't let go of what their flesh wants. That's what's cramping and killing the church of Jesus Christ today. We won't turn loose. We forget the verse in the Old Testament, I will withhold nothing that is good from those that are righteous. So if he won't withhold it, why do we cramp ourselves? Why don't we just put him back where he belongs? For additional resources, log on to jashow.org. That's jashow.org. 